Well, so far in the uh, book of Acts, we have seen thousands of people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as the gospel has been shared, as it has been preached, and it has gone out from Jerusalem. In the rest of the book of Acts, it again, as we've said before many times, it follows this same pattern of the gospel being shared, people responding in faith, churches being planted, there being opposition to the gospel, um, but yet it still flourishes and spreads. And that's, again, pretty much what the rest of the book does. It tells the story of men and women coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, responding in faith and in grace, churches being planted and going on to plant other churches. So that's the big picture. But from that position, today as we go through uh, chapters 16 and 17, I want to sort of go into the finer detail and how that message, that story intersects with our lives. You know, to dip into the reality of what was happening for the people in the first century and what God was doing in their lives. And then we might be moved by what we have read and not just read the Bible and miss many parts that are there for us to learn from, to grow from, be convicted by and to help others become more like Jesus and apply the gospel to our lives each and every day. But before we get to Acts 16 verse 13 where we'll kick off today, I want to just go through a bit of the narrative that leads to that point because where we left off last week was towards the end of chapter 15 and just after we left off last week, there's actually a sharp disagreement that comes between Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas were, if you remember, they had gone on the first missionary journey together and had really started to, to spread the, the gospel to, to great many different places. Remember, Antioch was planted through this mission and other areas. And so we actually see that this, this, this pairing, this gospel partnership, it actually breaks up because of a sharp disagreement. And I've always been concerned by sharp disagreements in churches because what happens is that there is a parting of ways. And to me, I've always lamented over that and I've lamented over the fact that these two powerful witnesses um, and church leaders were in such a disagreement that it caused them to part company and, 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 and it caused a split in their ministry and in their work. And I lament over the fact that I see this happening so many times throughout church history from that point and even today we see churches, even whole organisations like churches splitting because of a, a disagreement. It, it's, it's a great sadness and sorrow to me that that happens. An irreconcilable difference emerges that causes that. But you know, it, it's interesting because... I. When I did some, some Bible college, I, I found out about how Christianity spread through Europe. And back then you had these monasteries, um, particularly like these Benedictine monks would go out to these monasteries and they would build these monasteries on the furthest edges of civilization in Europe because they wanted to devote themselves wholly and, and purely to service and to prayer and, and to being a, a holy monk in service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they'd go out into the wilderness, they'd build a monastery and they would live there and they would study the scriptures and live this, what they deemed, a pious life. 
away from the distractions of, of society and, and of civilization. But what would happen is because these monks moved there, they would then clear areas to plant, plant crops and, and everything to, to feed themselves. What happened was that a, a, a village would spring up around that monastery. And so then these monks would then got busy with caring for and the whole village and then they'd get fed up that society had crept into them. And so then what they would do is they'd go to the furthest edges of civilization and do it again. And that's pretty much how a lot of Christianity spread throughout the European continent. And that's why when you go there today, pretty much smack bang in the center of every one of these little villages throughout the whole of Europe is a big church because that was where the monastery was. You know, that, that's pretty much a fair bit of how Europe was done. And so it seems on one hand to be very sad that Paul and Barnabas parted ways after a dispute. But on the other hand, what actually occurred was a doubling of their labor. So Barnabas takes Mark, who's also called John, under his wing, and they head off and they go back to the churches that they'd already been to in the first missionary journey while Paul takes on Silas under his wing and they go out and they head off in a new direction. It was a doubling of the labor. And so sometimes it is the sovereign hand of God at work upon these moments advancing the gospel. Along the way, Paul picks up Timothy and they head on to Galatia. But it tells us in Scripture that they're forbidden from sharing the gospel by the Holy Spirit in Asia. And then they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to preach there either. Really interesting that God prevented them through the Spirit and through Jesus saying, no, not here, not now. You know, it's a great great sense of gratitude we have to the, the timing and the leading of God that everything is in His time and for His purposes. But God plants a vision within Paul of going to Macedonia. And so that's where they head. We pick up in verse 13. On the Sabbath, um, we went outside to a city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and one began to speak to the woman who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. So what we know about Lydia is that she is religious, and she is moral, and that she had done very well for herself in the domain of fashion. She was from a port city, but was now in Philippi. And these places were like the, the, um, the economic powerhouse cities of the day, much like New York, London and Hong Kong are today. You know, she's doing well. She's rejected Roman paganism, is morally conservative, upright, and she's going to Jewish Bible study on the Sabbath. The women there are being fed by the word when Paul starts speaking and the Bible says her eyes were open, her heart is open, she hears Paul and believes and she's baptized. And so what we have here is a, is a wealthy businesswoman who is an extremely successful businesswoman who is moral and religious and at church but isn't a follower of Jesus. She's morally upright, actively involved in her church or synagogue, 
but she's not yet laid down her yes to become a follower of Christ and having her life shaped by Christ. And it is in that space that Jesus steps in and saves her. And so it has been for some of us. Some of us have been involved in church or have been attending church or were raised by Christian parents in a Christian family. You know, some of us would be considering ourselves morally upright by our world standards, by what our culture says. We would probably be even call ourselves maybe Christians or would have called ourselves Christians because of our, our association with the church, yet we hadn't yet actually become saved because we hadn't made that a personal commitment of faith in Jesus Christ of our own free will. It was just sort of the cultural thing that we did. It was the normal thing for us to do. And it's in those moments where Jesus stepped in and saved us. You know my story. I was three when I gave my life to the Lord. I don't remember a day where, where I haven't loved Jesus. But there's been times in my life from that point onwards where that faith actually had to become my own faith. It was no longer the faith of my parents. And God stepped in and saved me from, you know, a potentially choosing a different path even though I've always loved Jesus. In my teenage years, that was where really it became my own faith. God saved me. And I'm sure that that is the experience of some of us here today. If I was to ask you to raise your hand, I'm sure that you would be one of those people that was rescued even though you've been around the church before or even in the church. And I'm sure that we have either been that person or know someone who is that person. The next woman I want us to look at has nothing in common with Lydia at all. Absolutely nothing except that she's a woman. It's the only thing they've got in common. Verse 16, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at the, that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And so this text seems to be a little bit confusing because it seems like she's saying the right things. You know, she's saying, uh, they're servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. But she's not actually, actually acting as a herald of the good news. She's actually mocking them. And so that's why Paul gets annoyed. And he turns around and he casts out the demon in the name of Christ. You know, and that is such a real reaction. I know that when I get, there's noise and, and there's distraction around me, I yell too. Any parents out there? We've all been there, haven't we? You know, it's such a real reaction that Paul has. Oh my goodness, just quit. You know, it's real. That's what, what, what Paul says. You know, and, and the thing is that this girl is saved also. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you're going, hold on, Aaron. It doesn't say that she's saved. It doesn't say that she's turned her faith in Jesus Christ there at all. What are you saying? How can you tell me that she's saved? Well, when Jesus taught on how demonic spirits work in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, he says, when a demon leaves, unless something has replaced it, it will come back with seven friends that are worse than it is, and the person will be worse off than they were before. 
And so her owners have realized after the spirits have been cast out that they can no longer make any money. And so it appears that something has moved into the place where the demons were. And so that's why I believe that she's in the family of God because the Holy Spirit entered that home. Otherwise, the demons would have come back and she would have been even worse than before. That's what Jesus tells us about how demons work. And so that's why she's in the family of God. Now, if I was to ask you to raise your hand of how many of you were demon-possessed fortune tellers who were slaves, well, I don't reckon many of you could say, yeah, that was my experience. You know, anyone? (laughs) But here's the heart of her issue. Either by her own steps or by the forces of others, she'd given herself over to a type of depravity that had consumed her life. And I love that her story is right after Lydia's because it is so different. I mean, on one hand, you've got this brilliant, driven, savvy, uh, driven, savvy, well-known, well-respected woman. Jesus steps into her mess and saves her. And right after is this girl, you know, completely busted up, taken advantage of, abused, given herself over to depravity. And Jesus steps right into that space too. You know, some of us, have no way of relating to Lydia. We're just like, oh man, oh man, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? And for some of us, God met us when we were in a much darker place than that, than a first century Jewish Bible study. And so we find it hard to relate to Lydia, but as we hear about Jesus stepping into those dark spaces, we can relate more to that. That's more of our experience. That's more like where he found us. In the middle of darkness and despair, he stepped into some of our uncleanliness and ransomed us. And we've, we're given one more example. So what happened to Paul and Silas was that they were arrested and they were brought before a magistrate and the rulers decide to put them in jail. And so the jailer puts in, them inside the innermost cell and puts them in stocks and chains. Now, is anyone up with their architecture of first century jails? No? Okay. I'll I'll help you out then. So what would happen in these jails was that the innermost cell was actually lower than all the other cells. And so what we know about liquid is that it flows downhill. And so there weren't any toilets. And so in first century, the innermost cell became the cistern. So human waste would flow into the innermost cell. Not only that, but they were placed in stocks and chains. These stocks and chains forced the prisoners to be in a contorted position, pretty low to the ground, that they, your body's not normally used to being in. And so here they were in these innermost cell, in stocks and chains, being contorted into places they would not normally and naturally be in, sitting in human waste. And that the jailer, it says, the jailer didn't do this by order. He wasn't ordered to put them in this position. He did it by desire. The jailer chose to put these men in that position. He didn't have to. Then we read in verse 16, the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open... He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. I'll just stop there for a second. In Acts, you know that if you put one of God's apostles and his followers in a jail, 
there's going to be an earthquake, right? And they're going to be released. Just like, that's just like, bang, every time, you know, put me in jail, boop, earthquake, out we go, you know. But this is a little bit different. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword, about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. One quick point I want to make is whenever you respond to faith in the gospel, joy follows right behind it. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Isn't that our testimony too? You know, when, the, when Jesus steps in and saved us, we get filled with joy. Isn't that great? But historically speaking, in major metropolitan regions like Philippi, jailers in these jails were almost always former highly decorated Roman soldiers who as a gift of retirement from the front were given these jails to run. You know, a bit like a retirement plan, if you like. Now, Rome is not known for handing out flowers and stickers. They were a tyrannical regime and they were brutal. You know, there are historical records of multiple cities being sacked, destroyed, and as a deterrent for any kind of rebellion, there are records of Romans crucifying up to 20,000 people, women, men, and children, on the walls and the roads leading into the city so that people from the surrounding area would not dare to rebel because they had seen what those Romans were capable of. So these were not sweet or kind people. Now, I don't know what this jailer had seen or been a part of in combat. But what we do know is that people who see and are part of horrible things in battle, they are often scarred and deeply affected by those experiences and they suffer from what we now call PTSD. They come back and they are aggressive, can be, and and violent and and can't escape what they've seen or, in some cases, what they've done. And so it is evident that in how this jailer responds, you know, to belittle, to torture, to dehumanise them, that this guy is bitter, he is angry and violent, and yet even into that darkness, Jesus steps in and saves. And for us, for some of us, that, that is our story also. Some of us, we were angry or bitter. You know, things happened to us early in our life or we participated in things and, and that caused anger and bitterness to grow inside of us and yet God stepped in and saved us from that anger, from that bitterness, from that aggression and from that hate, hate hurt and pain. You know, and so God keeps stepping into these messy places and saving people. He keeps calling out. You know, not, not only have we been saved from these places, but there are people that we know who are still in and stuck in these places. 
and God's ransom and rescue of us out of these places is so that God can now use us to be his ambassadors back into these places because that's our experience. Now, some of us, you know, hey, look, I'm not a Lydia, not a slave girl, I'm not a jailer, but we were all lost. And we might be a, a hybrid of, of parts of those people, but we were all lost sheep, yet the good shepherd came after us. And what I love about this story is that the one who was mocking God was rescued out of her mockery. The one who was filled with bitterness and was angry and was pouring that bitterness and anger towards the people of God. Jesus just didn't strike him down for that. He didn't have the earthquake swallow him up. He didn't even allow Paul to let him murder himself. He was going to commit suicide because he had failed in keeping the prisoners in. Yet Paul, who had been tortured by this man, refused to let him kill himself. And such is the grace of God that invades those dark spaces and says, no, you're mine. And from there, there are a couple of groups that began to come to Christ. From there, they then move on to Thessalonica and God's saving people and planting churches there. Churches are growing and in verse 2 of chapter 17, we read this. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And in verse 10, they move on to Berea. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now, there's a rhythm being established here, you know, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is fully and faithfully preached, strong, gifted, driven women flourish. They are drawn to it. They're drawn to the gospel and they flourish. Now, the narrative outside of our walls is that Christianity is repressive. That's the message outside of these walls. But nothing and no movement has done more for the welfare, growth and the flourishing of women in culture than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Hold on, Aaron. What about feminism? Surely feminism has done more than what, what the gospel has. Well, did you know that feminism at its roots, was actually birthed out of gospel principles and served the purpose of what Christians called the imago Dei, all of us being made in the image of God. Male and female, he created us equal. That's the root of feminism. We are equal yet distinct. Now, I'm not talking about where feminism has gone to now. That's a long way away from where it started. But its roots were... We are equal. And so do we see what's happening here? See, these women were intelligent, they were gifted, and the Bible says that they were in high standing, making the point that these weren't weak women. They were bold, they were brilliant, they were in glad submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where something other than women flourishing is taught, 
the Bible is not fully being taught. I will say that men and women, although completely equal in value, have been given by God distinct roles to be played out for both their good and the good of the family and the good of the church and the good of humanity as a whole. Completely equal, but if you look around, we are distinctly different, aren't we? That's just reality. You know? And God has, has given us roles to fulfill as equals. That's what the Bible teaches. So to sum things up here, Jesus reaches into our past, whether they are filled with darkness or good, and through the gospel he saves us and places us in community and family so that we can flourish, both men and women, no matter what our background is. He reaches into our lives in a personal way and saves us. So from here, I want to, I want to, we've sort of done the real personal aspect of how God reaches into our lives. But how does it go about reaching cities? And I want to observe how Paul goes about reaching cities for the gospel and specifically how we can interact with our city. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul's looking around the city. Remember, first century Roman, basically, city. And and he's emotionally engaged by what he sees. His passions are provoked. And it's important that as Christians, our passions are provoked. To be provoked for a given area is to see how the men and women in that area have chosen a pursuit that will end in bankruptcy and destruction and be moved with godly sorrow compassion and love to engage those people for the good of their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be provoked is to see the beauty of what God has for people and that they are not even pursuing it or are pursuing a a counterfeit of it that will absolutely lead to destruction. If we're not provoked in spirit by this, then maybe we have neglected the word of God and maybe we've neglected getting to know God's heart as he has revealed himself to us through his word. When our passion is stirred, there is a godly grief in our hearts that says, there is more for you. There is more joy to be had. There's more life to be walked in. There's something better than what you're pursuing now. Can't you see it's not working? You know, maybe we've accepted what predominant culture says is the norm and have set our definitions according to what culture says is right and okay, rather than being provoked and moved with godly sorrow, compassion and love to engage these people for the good of their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if culture gets to set our definitions, then we'll never be provoked in spirit and the slave girl will remain a slave. Lydia will always be religious and moral but not free and the jailer will always be angry. So we must grow in our knowledge of what God calls beautiful. We must be strengthened in ways that the Bible lays out for us in how humans flourish. And let's trust that he is smarter than our age. You know, every age thinks that it knows best, thinks it has moved to a more enlightened society under the illusion of progress. Human flourishing, however, doesn't occur when we progress past things. Human flourishing occurs when we gladly submit to God's creative design. And so to know that design becomes imperative if we want to feel provoked for our city, which leads to love, compassion, godly grief, and the willingness 
to with great hospitality walk with people for long periods of time. And from here, Paul begins to engage with them. He says, I, I, I perceive that you are very religious. I even found an inscription to the unknown God. So you don't even know him. Well, let me tell you something. And so what he says is, you know what? As it happens, I know the unknown God. I know him and I'll tell you about him. And so it begins. He sees that there's this, this spiritual framework in place. And so then he engages in that spiritual framework. He sees that they're religious, that they're very godly people. He sees the unknown God and he sees, hey, you guys, I know that unknown God. So he starts to deconstruct them, telling them the good news. And I guess the question is for us, what are the gods of our culture? What's the the framework in our culture? Well, I really believe that our gods in in, in our city and in our country are are success, you know, and and comfort. You know, so, so, so our idols where we worship are at the altar of comfort at all costs. You know, what about me? What makes me comfortable? This is what I want. You know, that's a God worshiped in our society, in our city. And also the, the veneer of appearance. We want to look successful. We want people to respect us. We want people to think that, that we're beautiful. You know, that's a God that we worship. We see this being played out in all areas, on the sporting fields, on councils, on, in our homes, the way we spend money, in our time and energy. They all seem to be caught up in comfort and the veneer, those things that enslave us. And Paul steps into their cultural norm and he begins to deconstruct it by basically saying that, God is creator God and so he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands if he, and he doesn't need anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And so from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So I want to unpack that a bit. Because he says to them that the unknown God is the God of creation, the God of heaven and earth, and deconstructs their ideology. There's not a God of the sun or the moon and the mountains. No, this God, the unknown God, is creator God and is the God of all men everywhere and is God of everything everywhere. All the massive construction, the, this massive deconstruction kicks in because it says he's not served by human hands and doesn't need anything. See, in these temples, these people would have servants that would serve these golden stone idols and images. And so they would you know, have to feed these, these idols. If their idol got dirty, they'd have to clean these idols. And what Paul is saying to them is if you've got to make his sandwich... He's not much of a God, is he? That's what he's saying to them. He's saying, if, if you, when he gets dirty, if you have to wash him, how is he going to wash you when you're dirty? How is he going to clean you if he needs you to clean him? If it's not allegiance to the one true God, you become a slave to the idol, constantly having to feed it, sacrifice to it, wash it, to justify it, and to make an apologetic system around it. So if comfort and the veneer of how we are perceived are our idol, how much do we have to do to feed that idol? You know, and if we are, we're going to debt, not the good good kind either. I mean, have you looked at the statistics of how many people on the household debt in Australia and what it is just just, just on credit cards? It's ridiculous. And and, and we're going to sacrifice anything that stands 
in the way of, of those idols. That's why we so often see the blood of marriages on that altar. That's why families are torn apart on that altar and people are becoming a slave to these idols of comfort and success, the veneer of success. Then Paul continues and he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. You know, and what we create with what God has given us should never be our God. But it's important when you deconstruct something, you also have to reconstruct it. Because without that, everyone's homeless and, and, and without hope, you know, it, it evaporates in an environment where, where it doesn't know how things are to be done. And this is the role of the church, the people of God, not just to make new disciples, but to help maturing disciples to mature. So Paul says in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so here's Paul's reconstruction. Previously, God has overlooked this nonsense, but now he's made a way for us to repent and he will judge the world by the righteousness of man that man being Jesus. And the good thing about the righteousness of that man is that not only will the world be judged by that righteousness, but God has provided that righteousness for those who will believe to be a covering of them on that day of judgment. And so Paul's reconstruction is, repent of your sins and put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. That's the reconstruction. That's always the reconstruction, repent and believe. And so when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And that Paul left the council at that. Some of the people became followers and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now, the truth is that whenever we engage in personal evangelism or corporately engage a city, here's what you can expect. There will be a group of people that mock you. There will be people who think that we are a bunch of weak-minded buffoons, that they think that they're smarter than us, and they are so-called woke individuals uh, who will almost pity us. Then there's another group who are like, we'll hear you again on this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll listen, I'll come along, I'll, I'll engage, I'll ask questions. And then there are also the people that respond in faith, who believe, respond, sign up, ready to go. Anytime within our community where we share the gospel, we expect those three responses. And the saddest thing is if we are unwilling to see responses number two and three because we're afraid of number one. If we serve our own God of comfort, and our ego. We don't want to be viewed as foolish and so we don't step out and preach the gospel because we don't want our comfort and our veneer of success to be sacrificed. How sad would that be if we stay quiet and then are robbed of the joy of watching God do the most miraculous thing in the universe through our weak and paltry testimony of his goodness and grace. So whether you're a Lydia, a slave girl or a jailer, or any combination of them, God has put you here in order to engage people just like you were. And in fact, it says in Acts that God might seek them and find them as he's not far away from any one of us. You know, and that's why we're all here. God 
That's why God has placed us in this church for a time such as this. We are are a very different, weird bunch of people. Just look around. We are all weird. But God has created us to be here as we are. He has given us skills, experiences, so that and brought us here for a time such as this for his plans and purposes. You know, I, I have a, a gift in music. Um, I love playing the French horn. And I recently joined the Wangaratta concert band a few weeks ago. And I'm using what God has given me to reach out into another group of people, into that community. And so I'm stepping out in faith, hoping that I can be an, an influence, a positive influence on those people there through the gifts and abilities and the way God has made me. Um, a few weeks ago, I actually became the conductor of the Wangaratta concert band. Surprise, surprise. I'm happy to help. I also will still play my French horn a bit too. But, you know, it's an, an opportunity where I get to serve. I get to have, you know, uh, I get to have actually, you know, meet with these people and have contact with these people and hopefully have the opportunities to preach the gospel and share the gospel with these people. How are we going at those elements where God has shaped us? Those communities where we have the opportunity to step into and to share, preach the gospel. Many of us have a history and have a background. We have many different stories, different lives. But God has each one of us here for this moment and for his plans and purposes to reach people just like we were. We're going to close with prayer this morning. I just want us to to pray that we would be active. We're just going to celebrate the goodness that God has given us and he has shaped us and molded us into people so that we can reach people who are just like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in the midst of our darkness, you stepped in and you saved us. Lord, you have given us experiences. You have given us a history, a background, so that we might be able to reach into the lives of people with, with, those, with backgrounds and histories just like us. Lord, you've given us that so that we could reach out with your gospel. So, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to be active in that, to take the opportunities of those moments with friends, with family, in the the Probus Club or whatever interactions we have in business, in life, in work, in faith, Lord. I pray that we'd take those opportunities to reach out for the purposes of your gospel. And, Lord, I thank you for bringing us here this morning and for helping us become part of this family. Lord, from moments such as these, you've, you've ordained this, this group of people for your plans and purposes. And so we thank you for that. May we, though, not sacrifice the opportunity we have to share the gospel because we want to be comfortable or we want to not you know, be look like a fool or, 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 or someone that's a weirdo. Lord, may we instead seek to engage for the growth of your gospel and to see people come to a saving faith in you, Lord Jesus. Amen.